Well, hello, welcome back. It is another week, so that means it's another episode of the ABW show. Welcome back to everyone out there. It's History Month, which March is. I have decided to go back in time and chat with my mom, and she's going to give me the rundown on her education, her background, just to give you a little taste of where I come from. Also, this is a better example of a segment I like to call generational wealth because, yes, generational wealth does mean passing wealth from one generation to the next, but also the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of knowing, the wealth of knowing your history so that you are not doomed to repeat it is also something that we should cherish, that we should keep, that we should move forward with. That's how we've gotten many of our sayings from, many of our recipes, the way that we know about our history and where we come from. That's all generational wealth. And so I am pleased and honored to have this episode be a little bit of generational wealth coming from my mom, Before we get into it, a little background on my mom. She has been on Broadway. She has toured. That is how my parents met, actually. They both have been on Broadway. They both have traveled. They both have been a part of that artistic, creative circle. And I am very proud to be an extension of them, to be a part of each of them. So with today's episode... That is what I am hoping that you all get from this conversation is a little bit of wealth and knowledge. So without further ado, here it is, the interview I did with my mom. (laughs) You were not an original high school to college uh, pipeline attendee. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Because I automatically just assumed that you went to college right after high school, just like everybody else, and didn't realize that there was a gap in there that was not a gap year. It was a gap decade. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I got out of high school in 1967 and graduated from college in 1977. Remember, I was saying, like, wait, what do you mean? You didn't go for, like, a decade or whatever. And you're like, no, I, I didn't. I got a job. And it was because... I didn't get to go to college on, on our own, well, they had, I, even though I was really, had really good grades, all of that, um, I put it down to, well, I had excellent grades, there was nothing the matter with them. We had this guidance counselor, and she, you know, in my view, steered a lot of children to their program. I wasn't one of them. There were some of us who who weren't, we were just as capable and smart or apt, whatever you want to call it, as some of the ones who went. Perhaps some of us were smarter than them. (laughs) But anyhow, it is my opinion, my belief, that teachers looked at, certain teachers looked at the children's backgrounds, who their parents were, what kind of jobs their parents had, and their standing in the community. And they used some of those prejudices, whether they realized it or not, when they were making 
the assessments of who they were going to, you know, help um, or make make aware that these programs, <clears throat> these kinds of things existed. Well, let me back up. The state of Virginia had and still has a program that if you at that time, if you went to school and taught in the in the uh, state of Virginia for a period of time, something like five or something years, then you could get, um, it would be like a grant, considered a grant in, in this day and time. And they, your college education would be paid for by the state in exchange for you working for the, you're working for the state once you graduate from college. You And your teachers, you know, from high school, they would have to recommend you and all of that. You, of course, you, have, you should have grades that would support your going to school. Because, And I think my family, my father was not a pillar of the community. He had an alcohol problem, didn't work at a job that would efficiently support his family. So he was one of those people that people would think would say would call it just like not a bum, but somebody who didn't do live up to his potential and somebody who just didn't take care of his family like he should. Um, so it's those kinds of negative things that I think helped play a role in whether or not People, some of the teachers, in this case, this particular guidance counselor, would um, tell whether or not about this program. So I can vividly recall when, because she would meet, she met with each person, I would assume, because uh, they wanted to see what your plans were once you graduated. We were seniors then in high school. So when I went in to talk to her, I was t saying, uh, you know, that I really wanted to do uh, post-secondary education. I wanted to go, you know, to go to college because I, I always did sing. I wanted to go to, go to college, study voice, music, all of that. I had a music teacher in high school who always had me singing somewhere. I would go and represent the school in various programs and things like that. Oh, I just had this melodious voice. <laughs> and uh, that was their opinion. However, when I was talking to the guidance counselor, um, she did not tell me, she did not make me aware that this kind of program existed in, you know, that, like, that I previously described. What she advised me or told me, well, you could get a job. I can just get get out of high school, just go get a job like a lot of people did. You could get you could just be a secretary or something. Like, really, that's all I could be and I had good grades. <laughs> Would have done quite well. But that was that was her uh that was her advice to me. So I I got out of high school and for two years I worked in, in the state of Virginia. I worked for the school system as a secretary at one of the elementary schools. Can you, so I know you talked about you got this secretary job, but there is an interesting way that you got that secretary job after your guidance counselor suggested that that is what you should do for life. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, well, the job, as I said, was for the state of Virginia. It was at uh, 
one of the elementary schools, and one of the the person that they actually had hired for the job um, ended up getting pregnant, and at that time, you they you couldn't be pregnant and work around around the kids. They didn't want you just. They didn't want them to see a pregnant person. Uh, and she was unmarried, so that definitely wasn't going to work. Now, we both, both of us had applied for the job, but they chose her. But then <laughs> the guy, and then after he, and she called, she must have, because somehow he found out on the morning that she was supposed to report to work, which was like the first day of school. He, she called, I guess, and told him she couldn't come. I guess that's when she came clean about she was going to be having this baby, blah, blah, blah. But anyhow. Here it was, 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30, something like that. The telephone rang, and, and Daddy said, who in the world is that calling here this time of the morning? It was the principal of the school, who I was, who, had, who would be the secretary to, calling to ask, to offer me the job at 5.30 in the morning. He wanted me to be at the guy wanted me to be to work at like around seven thirty or eight o'clock or something like that. So we had to call his brother and ask him to come, bring the car so he could take take me to the school so I could be there on time. Then he came back to pick me up in the evening, that kind of thing. It was a it was an exciting time. But um I just couldn't believe it. This woman had told me <laughs> she had said, be a secretary. You can be somebody's secretary, and I ended up getting a job as a secretary. But that again was a stepping stone because because this guy he found out, and the way he found out was the teachers told him how well I could sing, so he wanted to hear me sing. So I was one day we was uh, he called the music teacher into the cafeteria or into the rec room wherever they had the piano. And um, he wanted to hear me sing, so I sang "Summertime." From that point on, he was going. To, he kept after me to, well, you need to go to school to, to study music. The blah blah blah. He just kept on and on and on. Well, I didn't have any money to go to school with or uh, anything like that. So, and your guidance counselor had already told you that you should not go as well. Yes, yes, she was not a good, she didn't care anything about how well I could sing. But anyhow, he that he saw that in me. He is the one who said, well, I just think you need to do this because you, you can't let a, your talent go to waste like this. So that's how I got to the secretary, got to become <laughs> the secretary in the first place. That's how I got to be that secretary for uh, the county school system. And then, um, somehow or another, we learned about uh, data processing school, and I don't know how that all came about. But anyhow, that is how I left the state of Virginia. I left home. That was when I left home. This was in 1969. It was me and several other people. And we came up to Silver Spring, Maryland to go to um, a data a school that would teach you how to write programs and do things like that. So I came. He, that's what brought me from there. Um, I got into this school. I graduated from there. 
And uh, the thing was that the school would help you find a job in the field that of data processing, they called it, computer programming and all of that. So they, I did get a job. It was in private industry first. I worked out at NASA at the time, but it wasn't for NASA. It was a company that was a contractor for NASA. So anyhow, I all along, I was still applying. I applied for a job with the federal government. And I did eventually get a job <laughs> with the federal government working in the data processing area. They called it the Department of Computer Research and Technology was the official name. And um, I started off working in what they, at that time, had as a tape library. They, they don't have anything like that anymore. But anyway, that was my first position in, in the government. And from there, that's how, that is how I got on the path to go to college. What happened was I became, again, a secretary to, I worked in the data processing department, but the lady who was the secretary to the, I would say the, he was the head of the department. Her, she left, she moved upstairs and then he asked me if I wanted to come and work for him as his secretary in, in her place. So of course I took that. And that is how I found out about the, the government at that time had this program, they called it Project Stride, and that was to help people, they now call them people of color, but people who, like me, and, you know, we didn't get a chance. They, this was when the government was trying to make up for some of the stuff that they had done wrong by black people, is, is basically what that was. So they had this thing where you could go, if you got into the program, you, they would pay for you to go to college, we would work 20 hours a week, get paid for 40 hours, but you had to maintain a full load, a full load of um, classes. So you, but we had to compete to get into the program. So I just thought to myself, well, I'm not going to bother because I know they're not, <laughs> not going to pick me. Well, <laughs> Well, the man who was my supervisor, who I was working as his secretary, he said, now, no, you are going to apply for this. You are not going to spend, he was so encouraging. He said, you're not going to spend the rest of your time sitting here doing this when you are, you can do, you're capable of doing a whole lot more than this. Now you're going to go, <laughs> you're going to go over there and take this test and apply for one of these positions so that you can move up. He, I would say forced, but he encouraged, encouraged. So finally I went and they picked me. Now there were three people, three positions that they had set aside for people who would do like a double major. I was one of the ones they picked for them. So they picked me. Um, they wanted somebody to focus on accounting and data processing, computer technology. So I had to, I studied two types. I had a double major is what they would call it. So I was accepted. We went to American University in Washington, D.C. That started in 1972. Yeah, 1972 was when the program started. 
and we went year round. So I finished in three years. It didn't take four years to do this because we went year round. So I, I did that and I got out. And the entire time we were in the program, we were assigned to various places. And I worked at it NIH at the time. That's where the Division of Computer Research and Technology was. And it also was where they had the headquarters for um, the finance offices. So we were assigned, I was first assigned to the accounting department so I could work on, on that aspect. And then when I got to doing, uh, focusing more on my computer side, I was then reassigned to the, to the area that uh, did uh, computer programming. So that you would work and go to school and they would give, you would learn the trade, so to speak, as you were learning to, as, and it, they made it commensurate with or made it equal to what you were learning in school at the same time. So I, I finished all of those things and I graduated from American University in 1977. And from then on, as we were going through the program, we were also eligible to get promotions um, in, in the government. They, they were great, like GS5, GS7. And when you get in, the, in a professional series, you go two grades at a time. So by the time I got out, I was a grade nine. And back in that, in those days, those jobs paid a lot of money. So then that put me on a track to continue to go two, two grades at a time. So I finally did. I moved up in the government that way. And I will say this. Throughout my um, career, throughout my career, work, work career and my um, schooling, men have been the ones who have helped me the most, have encouraged me the most. And they were white men who did that. I don't, <laughs> they always, you know, were very supportive and encouraged me to do what I didn't even think. I, I, some of those things I hadn't even thought of, you know, like I was telling you, I hadn't thought of applying to go to, to even try to get into this project stride, which ultimately earned me a college degree or I earned myself, but they made the way, opened the doors for me. So that, that's what I'm saying. I know a lot of times people will think that, well, then the men only helping you because they want some, none of them ever. It was nothing ever like they were looking for something in return. They weren't. Somehow I was always in the past uh, or in, in the, in the presence of people who, who wanted to see me succeed. When, and when I tell you that story, it, it is, I, I think back on why this woman would not, because she couldn't get past who my parents were. In, and I'm still thinking this in my view. It may not have been that at all. I know one thing. It wasn't because I didn't have adequate grades. I know that wasn't it. Why she would want to send me on a path just to get a regular job and be a secretary. You know, why would she do that? But then others saw something else in me and encouraged me to do that. I know I'm going on and on. I, I worked at that uh, through those jobs for a long time in the government. I stayed in the government from, oh, up until I 
I I was still working for the government when I had you, and then I well I had a break in my government service because I went and went out on tour. I worked in the government. I had a long career. Um, I had twenty eight years, and and retired from the government, and then worked in. And then went back to work after I retired. I went back to work in private industry and worked another another seventeen years. So I finally retired in two thousand seventeen. So all of the um, education that I got, I did get to use in in two different places. You know, in the government and outside of the government, I, I was able to put to use. What I had learned, and as I, and along the way, of course, I learned even more because there were always training programs and things like that that were available to people. Hmm. And did you ever go back and actually have? Did you ever run into that guidance counselor again, like after you had you know graduated from college at this point and visited home? Uh, did she ever find out that you actually had gone ahead and been able to get a college degree later on and had excelled so well? Well, I didn't particularly run into her, but I'm sure she, um, our school uh, would have reunions, school reunions, things like that. And I would do certain things and the paper, our local paper would carry um, news stories about, you know, how newspapers, your local hometown paper, if some kid or something did something that was um, noteworthy, they would write about it and it would be in your local newspaper. So she learned that I had ultimately gone to school, gotten a college degree and did not have to pay a dime for it, did not have to commit to working or the federal government or any anybody for any number of years did not have to do any of that. I, I it was a, a good blessing. Um, but yes, she um, did learn of uh, the successes. I would call them the blessings that came my way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, that, as I said, that may not have been her motivation. To this day, I don't I don't know what her motivation was, but that's what I put it down to, because I know how people, and they do this, people still do this to this day. They make judgments of others. Negative judgment, it could be a positive one to cloud their own uh, decision making. So I think, I think that some of that is what happened in this case. Probably. But it did not it did not hold me back, even though other people had to push me and, and all of that and make me see that I was more, I, I, there was more I could do. When I finally got out there and did it, I was very, very glad. <laughs> Can you describe where you grew up, like what the town was like, especially back when you were younger? Obviously, it's okay. a little bit better now, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like? I- I grew up in a small town in in, in Virginia. Uh, the name is is Crew, Virginia, Nottaway County. Um, it's rural. Back in the time that I grew up, segregation was still in play. I went to a segregated school all through my school, elementary, all through high school. We had segregated high school. It's a segregated school system in the state of Virginia. The 
surrounding areas. It's more agrarian people. There were a lot of farm people farmed a lot. Those that's the type of um, area that it was. People raised tobacco and things like that. There were some people who had what people referred to as public jobs, where they had a job out in in the um, uh, away from home. My father, for example, uh, had a job where he worked on the uh, railroad at one point in time. Um, that was a job that was outside of um, not working of outside of working in the fields at home. At, at home, I had an uncle who was a farmer there were many people who did that kind of, of stuff the town itself we lived out in what you would call the countryside and then there was the town and uh there were various types of businesses and we had some black black owned businesses one was a barber shop one was a cleaners and a restaurant owned or run by black people the majority, though, of the businesses in, in the town were white owned and um, they had only white people working in them. Every once in a while, you would find a black person working in a white owned business, but it was not something that it was probably like a janitorial kind of position or something like that. I, I can tell you my first instance of um, segregation and prejudice how I learned about this. This, uh, this incident happened in the town of Crewe. We were, it was on a, I guess a Saturday or something now. There was this cafe. The name of it was the American Cafe. Um, my cousin worked in the kitchen. She was the cook. And then the front part of the restaurant was where, of course, all of the business took place. Well, I did not know that there were places that little black girls and black people could not go in once you entered these establishments because because it had never been told to me. So this one particular day, Daddy sent me to that kitchen part, the kitchen. They would allow you to come into the kitchen. The public could come into the kitchen where the food that was being cooked, that was going to be served, in the restaurant, mm -hmm. people from the public could come into that kitchen and, and, and they would have to come there and place their orders for what they want to the, the cook in the kitchen. Mm, directly. So, <laughs> that, that makes sense. But anyhow, mm -hmm. he's my daddy, he sent me in there. He told me to go and tell uh, the cook, her, to fix him some particular type of sandwich, whatever it was. So I went in there, and when I got into the kitchen, I had to go in through the back door, of course, like I said. When I got in there, there was no, she wasn't in there. It was not a great big place. She was not in there. So I stood there for a little while, and then I saw this other door. So I pushed the door open, because I was looking for, I thought maybe she was in there. I pushed the door open. To, that separated the kitchen from the rest, the, the restaurant. And when I did that, this woman, and I will never forget it until it, I shed my eyes for the last time, this white woman with a beehive hair, blonde hair, piled up on top of her head, came flying to the door. No, get out of here. You can't come in here. Oh, my God, it scared me so bad. I didn't, what had I done? <laughs> 
I, I, I was so scared. I ran out of the bank, back over there to where, where Daddy was, and I told him. And I thought he was, I, he, I thought that my father was going to burst into tears. It hurt him. That's the first time I had ever seen him have that kind of look. It hurt him. I know it hurt him to his heart. See, they hadn't, we hadn't been told that you can't, there are certain places you can't, that, that you can't go where white people are. You have to go here. It, you, you can't go into this part. You can't even go into the front of the rest. Well, I never, I was what, eight or nine years old? I wouldn't have known that. Lord have mercy when I went over there and told him that I thought he was going to just, I, I, I don't think I can ever, I don't know if I can ever describe that kind of look. It, it hurt him to his heart. So that's how I learned how I learned about segregation, prejudices, and things like that. That there were places that you couldn't go. Even though, you know, even though we were going to school, children went to school, and we didn't go to school with the white children. They didn't go to school with us. We rode different school buses, all of that. We had separate school. We didn't go to school again. It never dawned, none of that ever dawned on us because it, I guess it was so painful for our parents to talk about this, about the, the situation in the way it was and why you all don't go to school together, why you can't go into the front of the American cafe, <laughs> and why, why you have to step off the sidewalk or whatever to let some white person pay, why you have to do all of these things. They had a movie theater. In crew, one of the, the downstairs part was for white people. The black people had to sit upstairs. That was the way it was. But it never, nobody ever explained to us why you had to do that. I guess the situation, it was so painful to them, they probably, to our parents and, and grandparents, that I guess they just couldn't bring themselves to tell us. And, the, and you know, teachers, they never taught us that. We were not taught that in school. Hmm. They never brought up the thing about uh, the fact about, look, have you all ever thought that this would be the teacher saying this? Have you ever taken notice that you don't go to the same school as white people go to, that they don't come to here and you don't go to the crew high school? Has that has that thought ever crossed your mind? None of that ever came because it was that kind of thing, as it is now, was not taught. It wasn't taught in schools. It wasn't brought up. So you had to learn about these things, you know, kids learned about these things in, in harsh ways. Or you just did what you saw your parents do. And they stayed, what people would call, you stay in your place. That's the, that was what that was. They knew their place and they stuck to it. Do you think uh -huh. that the reason why you didn't know about just racism back then. Do you think that they were trying to protect you for as long as possible? Like to just keep you innocent as just being a child and just being in the world? Yes, I, I absolutely do. And that's what I was saying when I said I, that my, my parents, my grandparents, uh, perhaps it was just too painful for them to try to tell us to make us understand. So yes, I know that it was a protective kind of thing. 
they did not do was to ruffle any feathers, so to speak. And they did that by just doing what they knew to do, which was to go to their jobs or do whatever it was, mind your own business, you know, just just go along with the status quo. Is that where uh, the go along to get along kind of that's, thinking comes that's from? kind of thing because they knew what they they knew what the situation was. And it was not only like that in Virginia, that was the situation across this country in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I've heard a lot of people say that things were better when there was separation, when people did, when we were, say, for instance, going to school in separate schools, schools and this and that and the other. I don't believe that. And one of the reasons I know that that doesn't work is because we didn't have the same tools to work with. And what I mean by that is when we went to school, books were not free. You had to buy them. There were some things that the county did provide, but they were used. Books, we had to purchase them from the county. Um, There were many days and many times that we did not have. I don't think I ever really had all of the books that I was supposed to have. A book like a science book or something like that. I may not have had that book. So what I would have to do, and a lot of other children did the same thing, at recess would borrow a book from that book from a child who whose parents were able to afford to buy them all of their books that they needed for each year. So we would stay in at recess and study the lesson that, you know, what the assignment is, try to get your lesson, that assignment done or read that particular whatever. Kids were outdoors running about playing. We wouldn't be inside or, you know, trying to, because you've borrowed a book from somebody, you're trying to keep up like that. I'm saying all of that to say separate but equal. was It was separate, but it was never equal. And the teachers that taught you, they weren't able to help. Like, like they wouldn't purchase a book and say, hey, you know, we have, it, we bought two books for the science class because I know some of you don't have them. Uh, like you see teachers nowadays, they will buy supplies for their class or, you know, help buy extra things to fill in that gap. That is not what happened. No, and I, I don't, I don't recall a teacher ever purchasing a textbook and said, uh, and saying, "Oh, well, I bought these two books for the class for those who don't have." They did not do that. But like I said, the kids who were fortunate enough, they didn't mind lo- loaning you books while they would. But I, I never experienced a teacher telling me that um, I could do that. But I, but somehow I always still did well. Were the majority or all of your teachers white or were they black as well? Apparently you don't understand what segregation means. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure. No. The first time I had an encounter with a white instructor was when I went to American University. And I I learned something else (laughs) when I got to college. The, The way our teachers would inspire us to work hard and get good grades was because what they would do they would tell us, well, these white children know this, and they know, and they're going to be smarter than you. You have to work, and you don't want them to know that you don't know this, so you have to learn this. They kind of drill that kind of thing in your head, that white people were just inherently going to be smarter than you. So, you know, we would take that, and a lot of us took that to heart and studied hard. But imagine my shock when I got 
to American University, and, and I was in the class in an integrated classroom there. When I found out that these people were dumber than I was, I don't mean it like that, but they knew less than I knew. There were things that we learned, should have learned in high school that they didn't know. I was shocked. I said, well, I thought they were supposed to be so much smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> and I really was shocked. And I really was shocked when, when this one guy wanted to look at my paper and read it, see what I had, <laughs> so he could get an idea of what to do. I could not imagine that. Here all this time, though, we had been taught that they were smarter than we were. I guess that was a tool to try to get us to study our lessons or something. I don't know. It's an interesting story that that is the way that that happened when you got to college, because mm-hmm. now with so much going on about critical race theory and how people are trying to remove it from curriculum where most people are just listening to the hoopla about it, where critical race theory is actually taught at a college level only. It has nothing to do with elementary, middle, or high school. But that's not stopping politicians and lawmakers from banning books by well-established and noted Black authors, and including I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, Beloved, and even The Color Purple. I don't see, if, if people are professing to want this country to move forward, to want us to excel and just continue. America, the United States, at one point was looked upon in a different way by foreign countries. We were a a beacon of hope. We were um, a leader. We were leaders. But if you are going to take steps to erase the history that you've never taught, number one, we'll be clear about that. U.S. history, American history has never been taught to in any way, shape, form, or fashion in this country properly. Because people have written books that's how, and people read them, that is the majority of the way I would think receive or get knowledge about the history of this country. Yeah. When I was going to school, we never really get taught about slavery. We never got taught about how slaves were were stolen from the continent of Africa and bought here against their will. Um, how they were packed into slave ships. None of that was taught. The fact that once they got here, they were sold just like human chattel is what they were. They were sold like animals from one thing. That, and it was not taught. Virginia history, we would learn about the, the three ships that came from a farm, how they landed. Some of them landed in Virginia, all of that. But if you don't hear the rest of the story. They will talk about Pocahontas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Try to make this romantic thing about Pocahontas and Captain John Smith and John Rolfe and all of those white folks. They don't tell you the entire story about that. They don't talk about the how the black the way black people were treated when they were brought to this country. Mm-hmm. None of that is taught. And that, that is written about in books. And that's the way people are learning about it. They want to take that away. So how are you going to know your history? The saying goes, and it is true, if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. Can you imagine people burning books? That is this? Are we in Germany somewhere? Because they did that back there a long time ago, didn't they? Are we turning into that? 
We not. have people in this country who are in leadership positions. I run up into the Congress with these warped ideas. I cannot believe that we have people who call them, think of themselves as intelligent, who are swallowing a whole lot of this stuff that is clearly, clearly untrue. And if you're going to be that way, what do you expect the country to end up being? That is, that's kind of where we are right now. So it's a sad state of affairs, uh, <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> it is. Um, it really is. And Hopefully, we won't be repeating anything from the last 100 years uh, because I am going to go out on a limb and say most of the marginalized people in this country, people of color, mostly black people, are not interested. Even when you were in school, they, I mean, obviously it was a lot closer to when things had ended, supposedly, but obviously seg segregation and the height of, you know, a lot of racism and then, you know, getting into civil rights was coming of age then, that they weren't trying to enlighten uh, the black community or, you know, minority communities about their misdeeds. So that makes sense. But now that we are a little bit more removed, it seems people are reading a lot more. They're finding more information, but now they want to stifle that because they want to, you know, not make their children feel bad. But nobody cared about children's feelings when we were learning about all of the white history it's about slavery. And oh, did they teach you about it? Because they didn't teach me. <laughs> well, yes, the curriculum did change a little bit. We did learn about slavery, but not, you know, it wasn't in depth, I guess. We learned about the Underground Railroad, so we had to learn about slavery. Um, mm. But in a very brief sense of it, that was pretty much cherry picked out. We weren't taught about a lot of black inventors. We're definitely not taught about black revolutionaries. We learn about Harriet Tubman and we learn about a few white abolitionists, but that's about it. Then mm -hmm. we smoothly jump over everything to Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and that's pretty much it. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have no idea about who Robert Smalls is or any of the other death-defying and unnerving pioneers that um, oh. have great incredible harrowing stories so we're just relegated to that um a lot more of that information is being shared a lot of i am assuming that the community that has tried to stifle us for so long is very scared because they are not going to be looked at as being the race to be or people that we want to aspire to be like but when people are scared they become dangerous and I, in some of the, the atrocities that we are seeing and, and crimes that are being perpetrated and all of this kind of stuff uh, against uh, other human beings, it's because people are afraid that they're no longer going to be relevant. But that, it does not have to be that way. What it does is it serves to keep you separated it serves to keep you always on your toes thinking somebody's trying to do something to you or take something from you or if if i let down my god a little bit they're going to get a little bit further ahead of me that kind of thing when somebody is full of fear that's dangerous they don't want to see them uh selves lose their places in society or in in whatever but if we just tried to live, work together, it would be room enough for everybody.
not for you, not for just one group or one small segment of a group have have sway over a whole major, a, a large majority of people. That doesn't work like that. Just saying, I thinking back on all of that. It, it uh, just think of how much how much has gone to waste, how much talent, how much intellect, how many relationships have have just not even developed because people have this insane idea of living separately based only solely upon the color of somebody's skin. That, to me, is, oh my God, it's, it's unfathomable. And it can, and it's still being perpetuated to this day. What good can come of any a society like that? How can you continue to exist and make strides and progress if you don't work together? Separate but equal does not work. That's the system they were working under. That's the system they were working under. All right, y'all, that is our show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, but before we go, you know, I got to give you some awesome black wisdom. And this week's quote comes from Harriet Tubman. I chose Harriet Tubman this week because for the past seven years, my mom has been the lead in a one-woman show about Harriet Tubman that she has done all across Maryland and also in New Orleans. So this quote actually resonated perfectly with not only the subject matter, but also with who she is and what she's doing. Harriet Tubman was quoted as saying, Every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. If that isn't a word, I don't know what is. Harriet knew what she was talking about. Every dream does begin with a dreamer. It begins with a thought. It begins with something that you think you want to do. You know you want to do. You just have to do. And no matter how much opposition comes against you, how many people are naysayers and telling you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think this way. You should think another way. You keep that with you. You keep that faith. You keep that strength. And you are staying patient until that dream is realized. That is what is super important in life, especially now. We have a lot of things that are against us. The world seems like it's topsy-turvy all the time. But people are dreaming every day. They are being successful every day. They may be starting that journey, in the middle of that journey, or actually seeing something come to fruition. And don't you want to hang in there? Don't you want to keep going? I know sometimes it's tough, but it's definitely worth it in the end. And we all saw that Harriet definitely made it to the end. She made it to freedom. She made it to the promised land. I hope you enjoyed it. Please like, subscribe, share, tell your friends, and leave comments in case you want to have something to say. Or you can hit us up and leave a note at societybtv at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But until then, we'll see you soon. Bye. She's got a text text from her cars to her clothes.